welcome to another episode of the Geek Night In, episode 53. I'm your host, Laura, and I'm here this week with Gemma. Hello. And no one else, it's just me and Gemma this week, because our work commitments and people being tired from work, it's just me and Gemma. That is fine. That basically means we can talk about video games and no one's going to sit in the background sighing at us like, oh, when are you going to finish talking about video games? So I'm not sure whether that was meant to be Kate or Tilly. One of them in my head makes that voice. Geek um, Night in headcanon. Yeah, Geek Night in headcanon. Uh, Kate and Tilly collectively, that is the voice they use to sigh at us when we talk about video games. But that's fine. We're here. Gemma, do you have anywhere this week that you would like to start talking about geeky stuff? Hmm. Well, it's a tricky one because I've actually not managed to do much. Again, work has been getting in the way somewhat this week. Work is horrible, isn't it? Oh. Well, especially when you're not paid for it. Well, that, that's, that's never helpful, not getting paid for work. Yeah. Um, but all I did do was finish Twin Peaks. And it's taken basically the rest of the week for me to digest this kind of stuff. But it got me to thinking because Twin Peaks... Um, kind of finishes and begins with a two-hour kind of prequel. It's mostly a prequel film. And it got me to thinking about series which have kind of spin-off films. And Twin Peaks kind of does it in the same way that Firefly did, in that Twin Peaks got mm. cancelled and there were certain elements of the story had to be resolved. So on those grounds, the, the film Firewalk With Me is well worth tracking down. But fair warning, watch it after the rest of Twin Peaks, because despite the fact it's a prequel, it has massive spoilers for the rest mm. of the series. And it's one of those things that, like, it's not terribly, it's not the best put together film ever, but it does do what it is meant to do, which is, it's like, oh, those things that I was left wondering, it answers those things. Possibly for the worse. Like, there, there's a bit yeah. of me that, that feels like perhaps that's that world's more interesting when you don't know some of those answers. But, you know, if you wanted those answers, they're there. And that is, it's good that that's a thing that was available. Yeah, and it still leaves some yet to be answered. So I can hold out hopes that season three will answer some of those. Although I've actually, uh, apparently that's been postponed to 2017 now. So that's slightly disappointing. Well, they've, they've got to push it back to make space for that newly announced Star Trek series they're doing. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah, Star Trek is... Into that. Yeah, I don't really know much about what's going on with it. Um I'm kind of hoping that it's they're going to do something where it's like, oh, it's connected to the movie universe, but it's like, you know, a different time and space in that same universe, so it doesn't have to interact with the movies, maybe. I don't know. Well, they already have the setup for multiple different dimensions, because they even covered that in Star Trek Enterprise. There was yeah. this whole thing in the final season where they had the evil world, and they, yeah. they spent a few episodes in that and then just dropped it for no because well, it's, like, it's like, oh, we have to finish the yeah. series now. That's like spoilers for the first Star Trek reboot film. Um, Spock Prime is Spock from the TV show series that made it over to the movie series. Yeah. <laughs> just Spock made it across time and space and like hopped continuities because that's a thing that can happen in Star Trek. So I'm sure they'll find some way around of doing it. I'm excited to see a world in which a Star Trek episodic TV show actually has some mainstream interest behind it possibly that's a really exciting world potentially 
Yeah, but they're doing it on streaming only, and that doesn't seem to go down well. Because actually, oh. looping back to like the other example of series with films that go alongside it was Battlestar Galactica, because they mm. had Blood and Chrome was a web release series, which, as far as I know, just didn't really do much. Well, the thing I've about watched it on DVD. Yeah, the thing about that is it released quite a while ago. Like, I think we're definitely in a healthier climate for um for streaming only releases like we're at the point now where like um what's good examples like uh, marvel's daredevil for example streaming only a big tie-in part of the marvel universe that people seem to really enjoy i've never but, heard of it <laughs> oh have you oh uh in the marvel cinematic universe there is a daredevil series that is a tv show series on netflix about daredevil from the Mar- and it's considered canon with the marvel films it's huh. just done as a tv show I wonder if this reflects partly... I mean, I am kind of a Luddite, and I think I've said it before, when it comes mm. to, like, Netflix. I, I just don't do online streaming stuff. Mm. Um, I think that's partly because my internet was never good enough back in the UK. But now I'm in Sweden, where there is fibre broadband <laughs> to the building. Um, there isn't really the... Uh, I'm going to cast wide dispersions here. Um, but I don't think there is the same sort of appreciation or structure for things like netflix they certainly have it in sweden but it's not really taken off massively here it's 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 very interesting just like knowing me and tilly specifically the reason why we use like netflix and similar services so much is that we moved into a flat and we just didn't bother to get a tv license sorted and we were like oh well we can't watch live tv because we don't have a tv license uh let's do streaming streaming stuff online i guess and we now like for the last year or so we've not watched like we've not done the whole thing of flick through the channel see what's on watch what happens whatever happens to be on no it's like what do we want to watch we'll binge through a whole series of it in one go hmm we kind of ended up with similar and actually we keep getting calls uh from the swedish tv licensing authority to (laughs) check that we don't have broadcast tv because precisely that but in my case, I'm building upon uh, Life at University, where I was buying DVD box sets. Mm. So I'm just re-watching those. Because also, also we have the advantage of having recently married. So actually, uh, my husband and I are watching series that we've enjoyed solo and sharing oh. it with each other. So that is keeping us going for a surprisingly long amount of time. <laughs> That's the case of Twin Peaks. That That is totally fair. But again, like I think we're certainly getting to the point that at least like in let's say England and North America, I think that streaming services are at the point that an online streamed only show does have a chance of picking up like wide support. Hmm. So I don't know. I'll, I'll see what happens with it. Um, definitely. I think by sort of like a year's time from now, we'll definitely be very much in that position, but I'm excited for more Star Trek. Star Trek is good. Hmm. I liked the, uh, I think it was an Onion article, which led with uh, the new Star Trek series panned by every fan (laughs) as soon as it's announced. Yeah, of course it is. But um, interesting thing while we're on the sort of uh, spacey theme stuff this week, one of your theories from last week about Star Trek seems to have been uh, about Star Trek. Goodness, I am a bad nerd. One of your theories about Star Wars Episode Seven seems to have been proven true in a new Japanese trailer. Yeah, yeah, the international trailer got released. And to be fair, I mean, it it was the original theatrical trailer just left us guessing about, like, 
wait, did Han Solo actually say that? And then this international trailer follows up with that to the point where actually this trailer feels a bit like spoiler territory. Yeah, potentially. Like, basically, your suspicion of um, Han Solo now believes in the Force seems was being hinted at, and it seems like that's now maybe explicitly being said. Maybe it's not being said explicitly. It might just be the way the trailer's cut. But I am now getting to the point where I'm like, okay, I'm not going to watch anything else from Star Wars 7 because I don't want to know anymore. This is looking a very bright and colourful film. It looks good, but so did episode one. Let's just wait and watch it. Yeah, actually, that's been a lot of people's reaction that, that at least the Star Wars film looks good. And to my mind, I mean, maybe I've just watched a lot of spectacular films lately, but that's not what stood out to me. I find it well, a curious reaction because that seems to be really pretty I, widespread. I think certain visual elements, uh, certain elements of cinematography and use of colour to me, were very reassuring considering the last Star Wars films we got, uh, particularly episodes two and three being like the last two main Star Wars films we had, were very dark. And as those went on further, they became lots of blacks and oranges and mm. very deep, very, very dark colours. And it's very nice to see um, a return to modern film capture techniques using colors that aren't black and orange in the star wars universe i think that's a lot of what it was it's just like everyone's glad that this isn't attack of the clones or um revenge of the sith was that yeah three yeah, yeah fairness, i think everyone's mustafa was very this. black and red it was just oh. all lava <laughs> yeah exactly and i think everyone's just glad to be away from the lava that was mustafa yeah so there is that um what else was there on the yeah i'm trying to think of other series that had um that had movie adaptations after they well, stopped. Hmm. Yeah, well, I mean, not even so much when they stopped, because uh, I've mentioned Battlestar Galactica. Well, that's, that's example, a very good point. To me, yeah. given that that was one, one of these ones where the film actually just broadened out one particular character, because with that it was Razor, and it was set somewhere between seasons two and three, I think. And I'm not going to explain too much about it, because the premise of the film actually does spoil a rather nice moment in Battlestar Galactica. So, like, mm. I know it's a really old series, but because that hit me so hard, I feel a need to just shut up about it, I've just realised. But I can sidetrack into mentioning OVAs as well. <gasps> oh, yes. Because I wonder, like, I've not experienced as much anime as you. <laughs> yeah. OVAs, but, o- OVAs are one of those things that generally serve as, like, a shortened adaptation of media in some cases, and in some cases they are, you know, self-contained, separate, longer stories. It's weird to to try and nail down exactly what an OVA is. Like, mm. in some cases the way it's used is to basically be like, there are two OVAs for Death Note that will take, like, the first half and the second half of that, like, 36-episode series and be like, right, first 18 or so episodes, or however many the first half of it is, um, we're going to make that into an hour and a half movie and mm. we're going to recut it down and use little bits of new footage where needed and like cut it down into a film length and basically like take a lot of the length and nuance out and be like, here is your basic summary of what happened in one film. Yeah, they um, did similar with Standalone Complex and Second yes. Gig. Yeah. yeah, and then the other way of doing it is that you basically get as like epilogues to series, you will get maybe like, let's say it's a series of 20 minute long episodes that fill into a larger arc 
what you might see an OVA used for is to basically give you like a 40 minute to an hour bonus story that's in no way like relevant to the overarching plot Hmm. OVAs are a weird thing I never know quite how to define what they're meant to be yeah I used to have it in mind from a British perspective as just being another word for a feature length thing but it doesn't always bear out pretty much like you've said it's because sometimes there's a distinction for some reason between the feature length finale of Steins Gate Compared yes. to something like uh, Read or Die, which is the only OVA I think I own, um, given that there was a whole series spun off, I think, from the manga, but it started as an hour and a half OVA, which is a completely different plot line. <laughs> yeah, now see, I don't remember much about it, but I remember that my first introduction to, I think it was to Roroni Kenshin, was, a, was an OVA, if I remember correctly. Um, because, again, OVAs are their own unique thing that happen to exist. So if any of you know a good, concise way to wrap up everything that an OVA is, let us know on Twitter, because <laughs> that would probably be helpful. I've watched a lot of OVAs. I've never been able to nail down exactly what they're meant to be. Yeah. I can't even remember what it stands for. It's like original video. It's, yeah. It probably stands for something in Japanese. I'm going to go to Wikipedia. <laughs> let me know, Gemma. I need to know these answers. I get to be the person who's looking stuff up. You yeah, usually fine. do that on the podcast. So I'm just like, ha ha ha. Well, this is oh, it. Yeah. Original, people. Original... original video animation, as I thought. Oh, okay. It is an acronym for something in English yeah. that yeah. I would not have expected. It seems to be an analog for straight to video, basically. So it's... Okay, fair enough. It's just like an like a feature length thing mm. that did, or a lengthier thing that didn't come to didn't air on TV or come to theatres. Yeah, which actually does make it distinct from uh, certainly Firewalk with me because that was released in cinemas. But yeah, Razor I don't think was ever released as a film, so that seems fair enough. Well, I know that both of the Death Note OVAs were, again, you know, unique things that didn't come to TV or or theatres. That's actually a very good way of... That's a very concise way of putting it together. Call off your attacks, Twitter. You don't (laughs) need to let us know what an OVA is. We worked it out. Uh, um, what did I have to talk about this week? Oh, I've been playing video games this week. Really, and, shocker! Yeah, that's pretty much that's pretty much all I've been doing because this week I've been playing through two games for a review, and they've kind of sucked up all of my time. Like I think I spent about sixty five hours in the last week playing games in order to write about them for review. I had six days to review uh, Fallout Four and Rise of the Tomb Raider. Hmm. Are you at all interested in either of those, Gemma? Well, I'm interested in Tomb Raider, but my problem is I've been interested in the whole reboot thing, but I've never had the console to play them. So at this point, I'm actually behind and I'm just like, bleh. Okay, I will try and sum up my thoughts on the second one as best I can without spoiling anything about the first. Um, The first Tomb Raider reboot, I really liked. I thought it was a very good way of reimagining Lara Croft in a set of gameplay mechanics that felt much more modern and much less of an artifact of like a couple of generations previous. Mm, that I being... played at least the demo of it and it did feel very fluid. Yeah, the problem with it for me, there were a few problems, but the biggest one being um, this is actually a perfect time to use the phrase that everyone in games criticism dislikes, uh, ludonarrative, <laughs> ludonarrative dissonance. 
because like I feel like this should be a klaxon or something. Yeah, we're we're, we're Laura used ludo narrative dissonance. I mean this basically in the sense of um, gameplay and narrative being at odds with each other to the point that it creates conflict within your ability to enjoy a cohesive narrative and gameplay experience. Mm. Um, basically, um, Lara Croft has to kill someone at some point in the narrative. She agonizes over that and feels terrible about it. And then two minutes later, she is gunning down armies as if nothing happened. Um, also, there are some very weird left turns that they take with Lara's character where they basically put her in um, the kind of situations that strong female characters, in quotation marks, are often put into in order to show that they're strong by making them go through something horrible first to prove that they're strong. Yes. That kind of stuff. Uh, Rise of the Tomb Raider um, gets rid of both of those problems. Uh, the character arc is much more concise and um, a lot more subtle. A lot of the problems with the narrative conflicting with the gameplay are gone. There's a really interesting story that's set up that sort of fleshes out the other people around Lara in her life and like her sort of ongoing antagonist for the series. And it basically just increases in scope and variation of environments in ways that I was like, oh, this is nothing but an improvement. I really like the first one. This one's even better. That's good. That being said... Um, there weren't many tombs in the first Tomb Raider reboot game. There's more tombs in this one. Still not many, but there's more. There's a few more tombs. There's one tomb you have to go through that's actually part of the core story and not just an optional thing. And I think hmm. there's about 12, maybe 15 optional tombs. So, yeah. I'm trying to think of the the Latin for whatever the title of a thing is, because that's a form of dissonance as well, as when you play an entire game called Tomb Raider and you don't raid a tomb. Yeah, the first Tomb Raider you, reboot, you did not have to raid a tomb. <laughs> so that was uh, that. Was that. Uh, the, the other one I've been playing a lot of is uh, Fallout 4, which my review went up today. For anyone who doesn't know, the Fallout games are sort of big open-world games that are set after... Um, set after a nuclear bomb has gone off in America and in the sort of post-apocalyptic wasteland of, oh, this is America after it's been bombed with nuclear nuclear weapons. That's a bit of a different country. <laughs> um, Fallout 4 um, simplifies a lot of things compared to past games that a lot of people aren't very happy about, uh, myself included. I think some of the simplifications um, didn't really make a lot of sense. Um, a good example being... Uh, as a, it's a it's a first and third person shooter slash RPG thing, and a lot of when you're going around the world, you have all these dialogue options with people that used to be full fleshed out sentences. Like you could pick from one of three or four different options of sentences you wanted to say. Now that's been sort of reduced down to single word, tonal, emotional words that imply the kind of sentence you're going to say in response. Hmm. Which just feels like a pointless step back. I don't understand quite what they thought was being gained by doing it. Um, Maybe it's to avoid putting words in the player's mouth. It can possibly, be a tricky well, thing to pull off. The, the, the problem you get with this system is that a lot of the time it's, oh, I'll pick that because that seems like what I want to say. And then what you actually say is very different to what you thought that prompt was going to say. And then you get the problem of, oh, no, no, that's not what I was trying to say. Don't put those words in my mouth. Yeah. Whereas going... if you have sentences, you know, like you can, 
make an informed choice about what words you want to put in your mouth. Yeah, because I was going to cite the example of Mass Effect, given that the first game, there weren't any drastic examples of that, but it did happen every now and then. I'd Uh, pick one option and it turned out far more aggressive than I actually uh, intended. The the perfect one is whenever that choice is where you say this interview is over to a reporter and you punch her in the face. (laughs) Um, It's like, no, that's not what I meant by this interview's over. Um, And there are a few points where that that kind of stuff's a problem. Like there are little... um, just weird simplification things that seem like they're you're losing something from the experience if you've played previous games um the game is also incredibly incredibly buggy um save bugs and hard progression blockers and hard crashes and um frame weird frame rate drops when you're inside buildings and Mm. just a lot a lot a lot of problems uh technically Bethesda's games tend to get patched pretty well over time, but yeah, launch day, this is a very, very buggy game. Mm. That being said, I had a lot of fun. It was a very, very large world to go and explore. Um, the They had a very nice sort of like the core story, while not super complex, provided a really nice entry point to the series for people who didn't know anything about the lore, even though it's the fourth game. Basically, they take your character you play as someone before the bomb goes off and then you get frozen for 200 years. It's like, oh, the bomb's gone off. You don't know what's going on because you were from before the bomb went off. And that gives your player and character a nice starting point to have no idea what's happening and to have a nice successful entry point to the lore. So that's nice. And if you want to explore post-apocalypse America, it's pretty good for that. Also, polyamory is a thing in it, which a lot of people are excited about. It, which is, is very rarely a thing. Like, in Mass Effect, if I like both Liara and Garrus, I can't bang both of them in Mass Effect. You can do that in, in Fallout 4. You can you can bang as many virtual, I don't know, apocalypse people as you want. <laughs> yeah, the risk of being weird and quoting yourself back to yourself, that is the quote that I saw from your review, was that polyamory is cool and that is cool. <laughs> yeah, polyamory like is cool and that is that is pretty cool. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think I think that was Louise or someone friend of the podcast was tweeting about it. Cause she got very excited when she saw that polyamory was a thing in in the game. But yeah, that that has been my week is basically mm. playing those and writing four four and a half thousand words about them. Uh, so I'm now ready to just like never play a video game ever again. <laughs> well, bugs in games is an interesting one because this is as somebody who doesn't manage to keep up with games despite mm. theoretically being in the industry. <laughs> <laughs> it's because I've tr- tried to design them rather than play them. But it still, like, modern games, bugs are constantly cited. Like, I mean, it kind of ha- doesn't help that Assassin's Creed is one of the biggest series still going at the moment. And of course, everyone knows the bugs in that. Yeah, um, for anyone who doesn't know, uh, there was an Assassin's Creed game released uh, last year in which some of the more notable bugs included people whose faces just didn't appear. And they were like weird skeletons with like eyeballs on stalks and like weirdly glitched out faces. They were very creepy to see. Yes, but I've been hearing that Syndicate has some buggy issues as well. Syndicate has some minor bugs, but nothing that like stood out to me as like, it didn't feel like it was a problem. Okay. Um, like there are certain games like Assassin's Creed. Uh, it was Unity last year, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, Assassin's Creed Unity was like very obviously buggy to the point that like people were consistently having issues. Um, 
Fallout 4, worse. Fallout 4 is any of the games that Bethesda, Bethesda's open world games they make, like the Elder Scrolls games, Skyrim, Fallout, they are notorious for being hideously buggy. And that's not to sort of excuse them or to be like, oh, no, it's fine. It's, Bethesda games are always like that. No, it's not good. And it was a big, it was a very big caveat to my praise of that game. I was like, I really like this game, but those bugs are a really big problem. Mm. Um but yeah, like we're living in an age where games can be patched post-release, so you know, games so, are just going to get buggier and buggier at launch. Yeah, so it just feels like publishers are being lazy, though, because there are some publishers who do put out, um, as far as I can tell, generally bugless games. They actually invest in their quality control, like yeah, quality it, assurance. It depends on some games, like. Big open world games I can be a little more forgiving with because there is mm. impossible numbers of things to try and QA must be an absolute nightmare for launch day. Um, sort of linear narrative experiences I find harder to forgive in that regard. Yeah. Um, the big one this year has been uh, Batman Arkham Knight on PC where the game was so buggy on PC at launch that they had to pull it from sale <laughs> and about six months later they put it back up for sale and it was still just as buggy, and they were like, yeah, sorry, we can't work out how to fix the bugs. Um, if you want your money back, play as much of it as you're physically able to, as buggy as it is, and we'll just give you your money back anyway. Wow. Yeah, that that game really didn't turn out well on PC. Uh, yeah, I mean, well, people have often cited it. Developing for PC is about as difficult as... Well, it's more difficult than developing for Android because they have this uh, this idea of hardware fragmentation where yeah. you have to design for so many different types of PC makeup. Yeah. So there that are, ends up hard. There are so but... many infinitely different manufacturers and types and variable sizes and amounts of RAM and CPUs and graphics cards and sound cards and monitor mm. layouts and operating systems. It's just... It is an impossible task to understand how your product's going to work on everything. Yeah, it is, but it, it does feel sometimes as though some publishers just shouldn't bother with the PC market. Some try harder than others, and some do better than others. Yeah. Oh, thing I forgot to say about Fallout 4 that was really cool that I've just uh, been scrolling on my timeline and seen pop up again. There is this thing in it where, uh, you know when you type in your own, like you type in a name for character creators in games? Mm. And it usually just shows up as text on screen. Fallout 4 has a huge database of voice recordings of lots and lots and lots and lots of potential names. Mm. And if when you select your player name, it is a name that they have in their database, um, they uh, characters will use your name in, in dialogue, huh. in voiceover. I have actually seen that in a game before some years ago, but its name completely escapes me. Yeah, and it's a really cool feature, except there, that there are some common English language names that are just for no reason, like, not in there. Like, mm. uh, I'm trying to think off the top of my head, like, you can have the name Sunshine, but you can't have the name Joe. Huh. So it seems a bit inconsistent, and we'll see how that changes over time, maybe. But if it works for your name, it's it's a really cool feature that like I didn't notice it until suddenly I was like, wait a second, did did that character just say out loud my name that I typed in? Oh, mm. okay. That can be a really nice touch, but if um, you're like a, a friend of mine, uh, his name is Louis, 
but it's very common for Americans to to just say that as Lewis. So whenever he tries to get his name in a game, it's Lewis, as opposed to how it's actually pronounced, i.e. the French origin. So That's sometimes fine. you can have it mis... Lewis is fine. <laughs> <laughs> but it's not his name. Ah, it could be his name now. Apparently he must be wrong if that's not his name. <laughs> that seems to be what the games are saying, yeah. So it, it can be a nice touch, but it can also... If your name is in the system, but is then mispronounced, that can be somehow even more insulting. I can imagine that being worse, yeah. Where it's just like, oh, you were so close. No. No. But yeah, that that is a cool feature that is a thing. Uh, have you got anything else you want to talk about this week, Gemma? Uh, I have to cast my eye around the room, actually. Uh, this is the joy of having been on deadlines and stuff for this past weekend. Because yeah. basically I've just been... I went to Gotland, but there wasn't anything particularly geeky about that, other than we were running a, a game development club for girls. Ooh. Which is pretty geeky, but there's not much to yeah. talk about. It happened and it was oh. awesome. <laughs> I um, I finally got through my um, yet another playthrough of Undertale, which I've talked, I think I must have talked on this podcast about a couple of times now. Um, if I haven't, I'm not sure. The basic overview is it's it is a short RPG in which you are able to completely go through without um, without fighting anyone, and you avoid being hit by moving a heart around in a sort of bullet hell, avoid all the things flying at you motion. Um, and there are multiple ways you can go through the game that have different endings. I feel like I have finally seen all of the endings of this game. It is very, 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 very much my game of the year front runner right now. I cannot stop obsessing about how great this cast of characters is, and I keep finding new things to talk with people about with it. I have a couple of friends who've played it a, a, a lot of Undertale as well, and weeks on from having finished playing it, I still find like every day or two it's like, oh, I saw this thing that ah, oh, oh, we need to talk about this, and I get, I can't remember the last time I got this giddy and excited about the lore of a universe. Hmm. So I, Undertale's really sweet and really lovely and really heartbreaking and it has a really deep lore that I keep getting myself like stuck headfirst into. Um, if anyone listening has played Undertale, I'm going to recommend this as unspoilery as possible. If you can't find it based on my description, drop me a tweet and I'll send you a link. But the genocide run in which you kill every character you come across, including grinding out NPC, like, uh, random battles, until there are no random battles left in any given area. (laughs) The final boss of that, um, there is a mashup between their fight and Stronger Than You from Steven Universe. And this may be my favourite song I have heard in a long time. It has been on loop today because it breaks my heart. (laughs) So, yeah, if you if that sounds interesting to you and you can't find it, tweet at Laura K. Buzz and I will send you a link to that interesting mashup. Alternatively, I'll put it in the Tumblr show notes. Well, I'm sure I might have to try and find a link to it that's not too spoiler spoilery, because the problem is oh, yeah. by putting that there, that tells people who the last boss is. Yeah, fair And news. I don't want to spoil that because that is a pretty big, oh, Okay, if you've not if you haven't come across it, it's a pretty big moment. 
Yeah, or maybe put it in the show notes, but with under like a spoiler link. I won't embed yeah. it directly. Let's see what we can do. We'll work out yeah. something to do with it. But uh, yeah, I keep playing Undertale. And I'm just like, oh, I love this game. Why is there not more of it in my life? I've been listening to the soundtrack repeatedly. It's the battle themes for boss fights in that game are some of my favorite bits of like chiptunes JRPG music in a long time. Hmm. So yeah, there's that. Actually, uh, that does remind me. I was going to raise another topic, but actually, on chip tunes, you just reminded me that I recently attended a free gig that was rather nice. Um, Professor Sakamoto, who is a chip tune artist from Japan, um, seems to have some sort of relation to Ryuichi Sakamoto, the famous composer, actually. Oh. Um, but yeah, he came to Stockholm's Tekniska Museet, the Museum of Technology. Uh, it was a couple of weeks ago, um, and it was basically a warm-up gig. So he was doing something at a paid-for venue, but he did this free one. And, yeah, it was really rather fun. He does. Uh, he started his set with a bunch of um, covers. Um, so he's, his thing is pure Famicom. Um, yeah. He, he wears this fantastic cape and leather suit and a helmet with, uh, like, color-changing LEDs in front, like a visor. But on his head is a Famicom, like just stuck on his head. <laughs> and what he does is during the gig, uh, he invites people to come up and stick cartridges in his head. <laughs> and he'll then play music from that game. Oh, wow. So we were treated to a Mega Man medley and uh, bits of Legend of Zelda. Uh, oh. And Mario, of course, because you can't have a NES gig without having yeah, Mario tunes. Gotta have um, it somewhere. Yeah. So that was all rather fun. But he's also a composer in his own right. So and I actually prefer his his own stuff. So he was playing some bits from various of his albums. He's got about six of them, which are actually quite hard to get in physical copy outside of Japan. Yeah, I can um, imagine. But he, he's done one in particular. The the C D that I brought home from the gig was uh I think it's uh, unfortunately the name is gone. It's something like Solar Soldier. And he he basically came up with this concept al- album for a a space shmup which doesn't exist, <laughs> but he wants somebody to make the game for this soundtrack. <laughs> uh, I like that concept. Yeah, and um, yeah. yeah, I just really like his stuff. This sounds like proper authentic NES or arcade stuff. And uh, although I can't think of the URL off the top of my head, he is on Bandcamp. So if you search Professor Sakamoto. You'll be able to find his Bandcamp page and you can listen to his stuff there. And I'll put it in the Tumblr show notes, thegeeknightin.tumblr.com. Uh, yeah. I thought I'd mention that. Um, yeah, that is a good recommendation. I'm always up for more geeky music recommendations. Mm. He's also a really nice and friendly guy. And I got my photo with him, so that was all good. Aww. It <laughs> is always so nice when like you meet those kind of people and they turn out really nice. Mm. I also oh. had fun given that uh, the... the very nice people and very patient people on the stall as well because i do not have much money so it took me ages to deliver it over to which album to buy <laughs> but the fun one was they were all trying little bits of swedish bless them <laughs> i was just like it's okay i'm british english is fine <laughs> yeah. um oh i had one last thing to talk about before we finish up have you had a chance to read the welcome to night vale novel yet no i have it i've started reading it Oh, nice. um, I'm not finished with it yet. It's really good. Um, 
interestingly, it works pretty well as a standalone for people who aren't versed in that world. Well, that's interesting. It is pretty. It is pretty well written to basically be. This could be your first introduction to Night Vale, and you would get a whole cohesive narrative. Just because, like, uh, I'm trying to think of good examples of how how the book gets away with doing this. Um, good example being, if you've listened to the podcast um, of Welcome to Night Vale, quite often when they reintroduce concepts, even if they're concepts that have been in the show for a long time, they mm. will still explain what they are. So, like, um, you know, we've got the bowling alley, the Desert Flower Bowling Alley and uh, Arcade Fun Complex. And, like, mm-hmm. it'll do these things where it will, without making it too obvious it's doing it, um, explain concepts so that new people have an entry point to them without seeming patronizing or overly repetitive for people who know what those things are just by the nature of how some of those repetitive introductions within the podcast happen. Mm. So I've been impressed by how well it works as a standalone novel. That has been really impressive. So uh, welcome to Night Vale Novel. It is really good. I want to get the audiobook of it already because... Oh, as much as I can hear Cecil Baldwin or Cecil Palmer's uh, voice in my head as I read it, I want to hear him read this. Yeah. I want to hear those voices. Ugh. Uh, I, I had one more thing to mention, actually. And th- again, Ooh. this is going back a little bit, but uh, speaking of getting sucked into things and voices and stuff, I have been ASMRing the hell out of <gasps> Bob Ross on Twitch. Bob Ross on Twitch is the best thing, and it's going to be over soon, and I'm very sad about that. <laughs> so this is uh, Twitch TV launched uh, a new channel for creative, so uh, people uh, doing Photoshop tutorials or just like ha- doing game dev live streaming. Whereas Twitch has usually been for like demonstrating gameplay up to this. It's point. usually active gameplay rather than like the cr- process of creating anything. Mm. And so to launch this, they put on a marathon of Bob Ross's The Joy of Painting, which is some 20 plus series, uh, epi- yeah, 20 plus series of like eight or so episodes. Of, of a very of relaxed man with an afro painting things and being very, generally very positive about life. Yes, it, it, it is amazing stuff. So he'll paint a scene in half an hour and he'll, he'll tell you about the techniques he's doing. But and, he'll, you know, he'll make a mistake and he'll be like, OK, that's that's not a problem. That mistake is just a happy little cloud now. Yeah, there are no mistakes. They're just happy little accidents. And it's, his, it's really uplifting and positive. Yeah, his whole series of fill, is filled with things like that. So it's like uh, you can always rely on having a friend if you put trees in the paintings. And trees need friends as well. <laughs> It's so wonderful, but he has one of those soothing voices. So if you mm. do ASMR, watch this because yeah. you can just bliss out for half an he hour. He has one of those voices you can just tune into the background and just something feels very calming about him being there. Mm. He's a very, very reassuring voice to have in the background. Mm. And it's spun off two fascinating things because uh, a few days ago, I decided to actually tune in to the Twitch comment stream, which does go by pretty quickly it just nauseates me otherwise but there's this whole culture now built up around him so that whenever um at the beginning of each episode he announces which colors he'll be using so that you can <laughs> line up your palette <laughs> there's this whole thing of like people they're called real things like weird things like uh phthalo blue and titanium white um but people people have uh, piled upon sap green so whenever sap green is announced it's like the cow's <laughs> lock just sap green hype all in the 
yeah and i really he like taps yeah. his palette knife and people just say tap tap in the comments yeah i i really like that like some of these weird obnoxious things about like um video game streaming culture comment um comment streams that come off as really obnoxious when done in video games take on this really heartwarming like different tone when you juxtapose them with this like very calm very relaxed man who's doing painting and you've got people being like hype 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 sap green <laughs> and also like whenever he paints a new bit of the, the painting there's this whole thing that where everyone announced ruined 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 and then he'll <laughs> fix it and it's like saved 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 <laughs> it, it is so nice watching weird bits of internet culture crossover with something that's so far removed from the internet age yeah it is a really nice combination thing yeah and it's also spun off a fantastic uh twitter account for people in that sort of area as well bob ross game dev where somebody is tweeting out bob ross style uh reassurances about game development so things like um uh annotate your code however you like it's it's up to you it's 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 your code. <laughs> All this yeah. sort of thing. There are no mistakes in the code, just happy little accidents. <laughs> yeah. We'll it just is, stick a little friendly yeah. curly bracket over here. <laughs> it's it's all very relaxing and calm and there are much worse things that have come out of the games industry. Yes. So yeah. There we go. Is that a good place for us to wrap up this week then? I believe so, yes. Hurrah. So Gemma, if people want to find you on the internet or the Tumblr that you do a lot of curation on where can they find you and all those things? Oh, well, I don't do that much curation on Tumblr. I'm very lazy, actually. But uh, you're, you're less lazy than me. I don't think I've ever put anything on there. So <laughs> I, I, I consider you more active than I am with that <laughs> Tumblr. Well, my username there is the same as everywhere. It's just Raygun Goth. Um, and you can also find me around on the Diversity podcast on iTunes and via Google and stuff, I suppose, as well. Uh, yeah, I tend to be just a bimbling about. Woo! Then you can find me at Laura K. Buzz on pretty much everything. Um, this week I'm going to have a review up of the Steam Controller and Steam Link. Uh, reviews of those have been up for a while in other places anyway, because some people got them early, but they come out at retail tomorrow, so I'll have a review tomorrow. Or today, podcast day. I don't know how time works. Time travel and podcast recording are difficult things. Um, other than that, got some more podcasts coming this week. It's going to be a fairly quiet week now that my Tomb Raider and uh, Fallout 4 reviews are out of the way. But yeah, Laura K. Buzz, you'll find most of that stuff if you just search Laura K. Buzz. Um, and with that, thank you very much for listening. We'll have another episode for you again next week. Bye. Cheerio.